Well, without question, this is my favorite time of the year. I think it's my son's too. He was so pumped up to wear his Christmas turtleneck and just uh, the, the pictures that I'm seeing uh, you know, on social media, Christmas parties and hot cocoa time in front of the fire, uh, family and friends coming into town. I got to meet some of you this morning. So grateful for uh, our visitors. And then we have a lot of people who are not with us because they're visiting, family and friends, uh, some spouses already on a plane and at other homes, and I know that many of you will get to join them soon. Um, but yeah, we just the whole, the whole travel experience uh, is extremely stressful and can be a, a, a joy as well as we get to reunite with family and friends. Well, today as we come to Philippians chapter 2, we have a little bit of that. Um, what many consider is just uh, some real straightforward travel plans that the Apostle Paul gives us here in Philippians 2. Um, Some have actually titled this section that we're looking at, starting in verse 19, as Paul's travel plans. Pastor Paul, he's uh, basically just updating the Philippian church on his future plans. He's hoping to send two of his co-workers to Philippi and hoping to receive them back and also describing his desire to go and be with church. And again, you read this section really quick and you can skim over it and say, well, there's not a whole lot there. But as many of you know, that's not how we roll here at Grace Church Monterey Bay. So we're not just going to skim over this and say, well, it's just a customary travel log of sorts, or it's just a couple of commendations that Paul gives and we don't need to spend a whole lot of time. No, what we want to do is we want to come to every text put on our hard hats and begin to dig because we believe that because the scriptures are inspired, because they're authoritative, because they're so rich that as we search the scripture, God will bless us. And I think that's exactly what we have here this morning. Now, when you look at this section in in a commentary, you won't really see all that much information given. Some have even said that this section, it's like a dramatic switch, a change of direction, and there's not a whole lot of connection to what Paul has previously said in the first 18 verses. And I would just um, disagree with that because I think that this is all part of Paul elaborating on all the things that he's talked about in the first 18 verses. Yes, it is an itinerary for travel. We, We need to be aware of that. And even though there's not a lot of heavy theology like we've seen in the weeks previous, we need to understand that there is something so rich and beautiful here. If you're joining us this morning, Philippians 2, this whole time that we've been here, we've kind of been unpacking the beauty and majesty and the marvel of Christ's humility. We've we've talked about this as Paul has put on display the humble mind of Christ Jesus is the perfect example, obviously, of what a humble mindset looks like. And we saw that in the Christ hymn of verses 5 through 11. And we talked about, as we come closer to celebrating Christmas, all that that entails, that Jesus, he, he humbled himself. He condescended by incarnating, becoming man. And we talked about this humility that's dipped down lower and lower and lower. He doesn't just become a man, but becomes a, a servant, a slave, And he just doesn't become a slave, but he comes a slave to the point of death. And he doesn't just go to any old death, but he goes to the most humiliating death, a death on the cross. But we also see that God highly exalts him and gives him the name that is above every name. So the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And then Paul begins to flesh out the implications of all of this. He says, now we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, recognizing that God is working in us. He's he's working in us as we work out our salvation. And one of the ways to work out our salvation, very simply, is don't grumble and don't complain. Paul gets very practical with his instruction. But now as we turn to verses 19 through 30, we need to understand that Paul is not done kind of teasing out everything that he talked about in the previous verses. So his mind has been about this humility. He's been teaching on this, and now what he does after he's provided the example of Christ, and we looked at last week of the example of himself pouring himself out, Paul having a humble mind, now he gives us two more examples, and those examples come in the person of Timothy and Epaphroditus. 
So here are two more patterns of Christ-like humility. Now again, just to situate ourselves in the context here, the Philippians sent Epaphroditus to Paul, who's in prison, to encourage him and to find out some information and also to give him a gift. And their expectation is that Paul is going to send back both Epaphroditus and Timothy to be a help to that congregation. Since Paul was in prison and since they feared that he would possibly die there, they were hoping to have a piece of the Apostle Paul with him, and that piece would be through the person of Timothy. But as we read this text, we understand that Timothy was not sent back with Epaphroditus. Instead, Paul sends Epaphroditus back with an explanation as why Timothy will be delayed. You say, well, why the delay? Why did you not just send Timothy right along with Epaphroditus? And my take is that Paul, he's confident that he's going to be released, but he's not certain. And the reality is, is that he might get a bad verdict, and that verdict might be, we're chopping off your head, Paul. And if that's the case, then what this brother needs is to have a friend right by his side. But what this brother needs is to have someone that he could just download truth, and so that truth can go out to the churches. And so Paul wants to send Timothy, but at the same time, because he's uncertain about his own impending death, he has Timothy with him. And so this is where we find ourselves this morning. Let's pick it up in verse 19. This is what Paul writes. He says, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be in good spirits when I learn of your circumstances. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned about your circumstances, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I evaluate my own circumstances. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself also will be coming to you shortly. Oh Lord, would you please open up this text to our hearts, to our minds, to our understanding so that we would not just learn, but God, we would grow in grace and truth and we will be obedient to what you're calling us to this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I've titled this sermon, Timothy, A Profile of a Self-Sacrificing Servant. And that's exactly what we see in these few verses. There's a number of things that pop out about what a self-sacrificing servant is like. And so we'll follow this, uh, this outline Very simple. The first thing we'll look at is that Timothy is spirit-filled. He is a believer who is spirit-filled. And then Paul will begin to elaborate on this idea of him being same-souled. And then we'll discover that Timothy, what makes him stand out is that he's sincere, he's steady, he's selfless, and he serves as a son. All of that coming straight from the text. Spirit-filled, same-souled, sincere, selfless, steady, and served as a son. And if you're taking notes, here's our main idea. Paul's commendation of Timothy profiles a self-sacrificing servant whose character and conduct provide us with a living example of Christ-minded humility. Let me say it again. Paul's commendation of Timothy profiles a self-sacrificing servant whose character and conduct provide us with a living example of Christ-minded humility. It's real easy to look at some of these examples that Paul has laid out and say, man, I I don't come close to Christ. I know that that humility is beautiful. I know that he gave of himself. I know that he humbled himself, and I just can't do that. And so Paul provides the example of himself, of pouring himself out, and you say, yeah, well, that's Jesus. I can't be Jesus. And that's Paul. I can't be Paul. And so Paul almost says, okay, well, let me give you someone else. How about Timothy? And then today we'll walk away and say, well, I can't be like Timothy. So then he'll say, okay, well, how about Epaphroditus? He's giving us a pattern of what this Christ-minded humility looks like. So let's begin here with Timothy being the self-sacrificing servant who is spirit-filled. Verse 19 says this, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I may also be in good spirits when I learn of your circumstances. Now we've got introduced to Timothy at the beginning of the the book, the letter. But what do we know about Timothy? 
and his testimony. First of all, his name means honoring God. And Paul first encountered Timothy about 20 years after the death of Christ. You remember Paul and Silas, they met Timothy in the first few months of Paul's second missionary journey. That's recorded for us in Acts 16. And when they, when they arrived in Lystra, which is modern-day Turkey, they began to hear news and reports of a young man who was just faithful. He, he stood out among the rest as being a godly man. Timothy, he was the son of a racially and religiously mixed marriage. He grew up in what we would call a, a multicultural household because his mom was Jewish, but his dad was Greek. And as you know, just thinking back to that first century time, it was a little strange to have one foot in the Hebrew world and another foot in the Hellenistic world. But this is the world that he grew up in. What we are sure about was that Timothy grew up with a rich Christian heritage. He had both a mother and a grandmother who loved the Lord and taught him the scriptures. In fact, we read this in 2 Timothy 1.5. He says, Paul writes, writing to Timothy, says, being reminded of the unhypocritical faith within you. And then he says this, which first dwelt in your grandmother, Lois, and then in your mother, Eunice. And Paul says, and I am convinced that it is in you as well. And it almost seems like week after week, I want to remind, especially the mothers, because it's so dear to my heart when I see my wife doing the Advent readings with the kids and praying with the kids and waking up early to get in the Word with the kids that, ladies, your role as a mother in shaping Christ-likeness is so huge. And we as husbands and sons and fathers are so grateful for your investment in our kids. I look at Timothy's life, and I'm just so thankful for these ladies, for Lois and for Eunice. But it was his mother and grandmother that taught him the Hebrew Scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.15 says this, And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Well, what we also know is that by the time Paul meets Timothy there in Acts 16, he had already become a Christian. So much so that Paul says, hey, I like this guy. I want to take him with me. And Paul has an attraction to this brother. And Timothy becomes his protege. But before they even enter into this discipleship or this mentorship relationship, I just want to highlight the sovereignty and the providence of God. Because God sent Paul a guy that was not just stellar, not just excellent, but was perfect. When you think about Timothy's background, he was culturally malleable. He was familiar with Judaism and the Gentile world. He loved the Lord Jesus. He was devout. He was holy. And he was a perfect candidate to follow Paul around and learn from the apostle himself. Do you remember Paul, his ministry, even though he was called an apostle to the Gentiles, everywhere he went, where did he first go? He went to the Jews. He is an apostle to the Jews first and then also to the Greeks. So every new city that Paul walks into, he's always looking for the synagogue. And you remember back in Philippians, he shows up, but there is no synagogue. And so he goes down by the river, and there's like a little prayer meeting with these ladies, and that's how the church begins there. But Timothy is the perfect candidate to walk alongside Paul and have this ministry with him. So Timothy, he believed the gospel. He loved the gospel. He poured himself out in ministry for the gospel. And Paul says, this is the one that I want to send to you shortly. And here we begin to see, we just get a glimpse of how valuable this young believer was to Paul. And we see it by way of implication in this statement. Look at it again. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. And then he says this, so that I also may be in good spirits. I just love those little words because I want us to think about that for a quick second. And ask this question, if Paul is just looking for a good report to come back to him, why send Timothy? I mean, Epaphroditus is going back to deliver the letter. They didn't have text message and email. I mean, I suppose he could have done that. But if he's just looking for a report that the Philippian church is doing well, then why actually send your right-hand man all the way over there? I think the so that is revealing. 
He wants a good report. You know how he's going to get it? He's going to send Timothy. Timothy is going to be the reason why a good report is going to come back for sure. He's ensuring that it's going to be positive. And you say, well, how do we know that? Well, because Timothy is spirit-filled. He's going to elaborate on the beauty and the implications of the gospel. He's going to be able to be an incarnational, living example of all the things that Paul is preaching and teaching in this letter. He's going to help that church learn what it means to die to self and regard one another as more important than themselves. And it's because of his time there with the Philippians that Paul will get a good report. So Paul, he's confident in the Lord that he's going to be allowed to visit the Philippians at least one more time. But in the meantime, what he says is, I'm going to do the next best thing. I'm going to send a piece of myself by sending my son, Timothy. And he's going to shepherd you, and he's going to love you. And Paul has all the confidence in the world that this church will be cared for because of Timothy's presence with him. And it's a reminder to us, because Timothy is going to do spiritual work, and he's hopefully going to bring about spiritual joy, but that only comes from spiritual people. A lot of times people send those to a church to try to fix a church, to do church management and church leadership and church structure, but they're not spirit-filled people, and you'll never get that kind of results. You've heard that saying, you don't send a boy to do a what? A man's job. You don't send any old person to do spiritual work. Paul wasn't looking for the most talented, the most trained, the most towering of personalities. What Paul wanted was a man who loved the Lord, who loved people, and he says, I found him, and it's Timothy, and I'll send him soon. So we see here that uh, he was spirit-filled, but next, number two, the text says that he is same soul. Look at verse 20. He says, for I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned about your circumstances. What does Paul mean here by no one else? At first reading, I thought, that's kind of harsh, Paul. Like, You've got some disciples with you and some other believers, and do they they hear you say that and see you pin that? How does that make them feel? Did you really not have no one else? I mean, he had men like Tychicus, Aristarchus, Mark, Epaphras. There was Luke. When you look at Paul's letters, he, he closes nearly every letter with a personal note, and he names all these faithful brothers and sisters that are with him. At the end of Romans, he mentions at least 35 people by name. So does Paul really not have anyone else? Obviously, people were useful to Paul. I think what Paul means here was that Timothy was uniquely useful. When he says, I have no one else, he's making this strong statement about the like-mindedness that he has with this brother Timothy. And we, we understand that by the use of his word here, kindred spirit. If you have the ESV or the NIV translation, it says, I have no one like him, and then it just stops. And I think those translations can be helpful. But Paul intentionally uses a specific word here to not just point to his uniqueness, but the reason for his uniqueness. And that word there, is a, it's a compound word, isosuches. It's unique. It's only used by Paul, and it's only used here. Earlier, back in 2.2, Paul used sum sukos. Uh, sukos is where we get the words psychology, psyche, soul. Su means with, but iso means equal. And so what Paul is saying here is, yes, we are like-minded. The Latin Vulgate translates it unanimous. They, they're like-minded in their decisions, But we have to ask the question, well, what are they actually like-minded about? Is it that they just got along and they they never had any disagreements? Is that what Paul is referring to? I don't think that's the case. What Paul is saying here is that Timothy is so unique and so special. You know why? Because he has the same mindset as me. He's always thinking about the things of Christ. His heart, his affections are always on the gospel. 
Back in 2.2, again, he says, fulfill my joy and think the same way, maintaining the same love, being united in spirit and thinking on one purpose. And Paul says, that's me and Timothy. We're like that. In 2.5, he says, have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And Paul says, me and Timothy, we have this attitude. They both had the mind of Christ. They thought the same thoughts. They had the same spiritual goals. Their hearts beat in rhythm, and they shared the same kind of convictions and purpose. And that right there, church, is what made Timothy so unique and so unlike any other. Paul was just saying, look, out of all the people that I know, Timothy gets me. He gets me. We're kindred spirits. We're of one mind. He knows what I'm about, and he's about it too. That was Timothy. He was a man after Paul's own heart, one in thought, one in feeling, one in spirit, and one in their love for the church. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. As Paul is giving instruction here to the Corinthian church, he says this in verse 16, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 16. He says, therefore, I exhort you. And then he says this, be imitators of me. Verse 17, for this reason, I have sent you Timothy. It's interesting. Paul says, I want you to be an imitator of me. And for this reason, because I want you to imitate me and my life and my affections and my desires, I'm sending you Timothy. He says, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord? And he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Paul wanted to help the Corinthians to be faithful to the Lord. So he says, follow me in the way that I'm going to help you do that. Even though I'm not present, I'm going to send you Timothy. We can say this, that Timothy was Paul's little mini-me. And so Paul tells the Philippians, look, I've got no one else by my side that I can trust. No one else that I have by my side that will personally love you and care for you. And the reason why this is so special to Paul, this relationship that he has with Timothy, is because of what we read throughout his letters. Not everyone stuck by Paul's side. Not everyone was a faithful friend. In fact, if we look uh, at 2 Timothy, this is the last letter that Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 1.15. He says this, you're aware of this that all who are in Asia turn from me. He didn't say some. What does he say? All. They turned away from me. Among them are Phygleus and Hermogenes. In 2 Timothy 4.10, he says, For Demas, having loved this present age, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. 2 Timothy 4.16 he said, at my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. But look at the heart of Paul. May it not be counted against them. Here this brother is in prison. He knows he's about to die. His time is short, and everyone has forsaken him. They've left the work. They've left the ministry. It's too hard. I don't want to end up in the shoes that Paul's ending up in. He's about to have his head chopped off. And no one is sticking alongside Paul. But not Timothy. Timothy's right next to him. Always faithful, committed, loyal. Psalm 133, 1. I actually gave this to one of my, um, my groomsmen. It says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is a sweet grace, church, to find someone who is like-minded, same-souled, who loves the same things that you do. And sure, it's great when you find someone who's a kindred spirit. They like the same sports teams. I'm, I'm an oddball here because everyone hates on the Lakers, right? So I don't find a whole lot of that here. But ter Terry and I, we bumped into um, a guy at um, Sir Burger. What was his name? Hal. Talking to Hal, enjoying his burger, having some conversation. Hey, where are you from? I'm from City Terrace. No way, you're from City Terrace. I'm from East L.A., and we just start talking it up because we're from the same hood and we're talking about the places that we like to eat and the places we like to go. And it was like instant camaraderie. And it's fantastic. There's a, a kindred spirit of sorts. But nothing beats meeting a believer. 
from a different place, from a different location, from a different country. There, there's a couple here that I just met, uh, my wife and I, we just met them the other night. And to see them pray and to hear them talk about raising their kids and instructing their kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord, it's like right away my heart is just magnetically connected to yours because you love Jesus and the gospel and the word of God. It is a very unique and special thing to find people who are same-souled. And we see that here with Paul and Timothy. In fact, I was thinking about David and David's um, best bud, which was his worst enemy's son. You guys know the relationship between David and Jonathan. In 1 Samuel 18, I love reading this. It says, Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And it says this, and Jonathan loved him as himself. And then just a couple of verses later in verse three, it says, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Look, nothing compares with finding like-minded brothers and sisters in Christ whose hearts beat for Jesus who long to see the gospel spread throughout this world, who long to see God's glory maintained. So Timothy, spirit-filled, same-souled. Now Paul gives one of the most important characteristics of what it means to be same-souled. You say, yes, they've got one mind, but the question again we ask is, well, what exactly is it that Paul is saying they equally give their souls to? And the answer is right there in the text. Look at verse 20. He says, for I have no one else of kindred spirit, but then he says, who will genuinely be concerned about your circumstances? So right there, that's the, that's the content, that's the object of their same soulness. It's that both Paul and Timothy cared deeply for the spiritual well-being of the church. And so point number three is that Timothy is sincere. He's sincere. He's got the same kind of genuine concern for the church that Paul does. Same attitude, same heart. That word, sincere, it's a fascinating word because it really says anxious. That's the word, anxious. And usually when we come to the scriptures and we see that word anxious, it's viewed negatively. We don't view anxiety as a good thing. Paul will say just in two chapters, be Anxious for nothing. Jesus uses that word several times in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, where he says, look, don't worry. Same word. Don't be anxious about what you'll eat and what you'll drink and what you'll wear. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Why? Because tomorrow has enough anxiety of its own. And so we learn from Scripture we're not supposed to be anxious, and yet here Paul is commending Timothy because he's anxiously concerned for the church. So you say, well, what's the deal here? Well, I think it's pretty simple. Why is Paul making this distinction between good anxiety and bad anxiety or what makes it a vice or a virtue? Two things, just real simple. You ask a question. What is it that you're anxious about? What are you doing with that anxiety? Two things, and that'll help you. See, Timothy He's not concerned about himself. He's not concerned about food or drink or clothing. He's not overly stressed out about his health or his house. He's not consumed with his finances, his vacation plans, his sports team. No, Timothy is concerned about one thing. A lot of us, we lose sleep over what the government is doing, what the government is not doing. So, so terrified, so confused, so frustrated, and we're anxious. Mandates, vaccines, they're going to give it to my kid, we're going to have to move out of the country, we're going to have to move out of the state, what are, we, what are we doing here? Timothy is consumed with the glory of Christ, with the health of the church. That's where his mind is. You know, I have a few friends right now who are looking for pastoral jobs, and I've been kind of walking alongside them as they've been going to these interviews and pastors are interviewing them. And 
Obviously, when any man is applying for a job as a pastor, you want to meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, right? You want your, your character and the qualifications to match up. But some churches, they include, and what they're searching for is, we need someone with a charismatic personality. We need someone who's an entrepreneur. We need someone who's a visionary. And you say, well, okay, those, those things aren't necessarily wrong, but a church, no doubt, should look for someone who's holy and devout, but someone who is primarily concerned about the spiritual welfare of the people. That's the thing that needs to keep them up at night. I'll just tell you this. Pastor Nick is that man. The way that he prays for you, the way that he thinks about you, his desire to see Christ formed in you, there's not a week that goes by that Nick is not bringing up someone that he, that he loves here at the church, that he wants to see Christ formed. Pastor Nick is a faithful, living, godly example of someone who is genuinely concerned about your spiritual welfare. The beautiful thing is that what we see from Paul is that this was his daily consideration. Look at the 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul, as he's listing all the things that he's experiencing, all that he's going through, he says there in verse 28, I've been in labor and hardship, in many sleepless nights, in starvation and in thirst, often hungry, in cold and without enough clothing. And he says this in verse 28, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all of the churches. What Paul is saying here is, look, the reason why Timothy is so special, the reason why he's same-souled with me is because every day this brother is concerned about the church. He cares about marriages. He cares about parents raising up their kids in the Lord. He cares that people are using their spiritual gifts, that they're giving generously, He's concerned that the church wouldn't be so insulated, but they would continue to hold out the gospel to a lost and unbelieving world. He wants the church to be a light. Look, church, we do a great disservice if you hear all that and you say, well, that's the role of the pastor. So Dominic, we'll keep praying for you. You guys do a good job. But the reality is this is for every believer. Every believer should have a genuine concern for other believers in our congregation. This is why we take membership so seriously. This is why we want you to consider membership because we're making a covenant with one another that it's not just Dominic's responsibility to look after the souls of people, but it's our responsibility as well. We want to see Christ formed in one another because the brighter that we shine, the more Christ is magnified. We say it every single week, right? Why do we exist to glorify God? How do we do that? By magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ and what? Ministering to his church. And that's not just the pastors. The entire church, all of us collectively, should have the same heart that Paul did and Timothy did to want to see Christ formed in all of us. And you think, Jesus, his relationship to the church is the bride. He loves the bride. He wants the bride to be pure and holy. Paul wants the bride to be pure and holy. Timothy wants the bride to be pure and holy, and every single one of us should have that same desire and be structuring and ordering our lives so that we would actually see that. Zealous for good works, we learn in the scriptures, eager to please God with our worship, having the kind of gospel-shaped lives that reflect God's priorities. So let me ask you, is that you? Is that your desire? Do you have a sincere concern for the spiritual well-being of others here sitting in the pews next to you. Paul was sure that Timothy would carry this out. He would manifest this spirit of concern. And there was no one else like him. So Timothy, he's spirit-filled, he's same-souled, he's sincere. But look there in verse 21, he's also selfless. Selfless. Verse 21 says, For they all seek after their own interests, but not those of Christ Jesus. Timothy, real simply, he has not a me first, but a me third Kind of Christianity. 
A couple weeks ago, we talked about that the key for joy, the formula to pursue joy, is to prioritize Jesus, others, and then yourself. And Timothy is known for his selflessness. Now, it's not entirely sure, because Paul says here they all seek after their own interest. We're not totally sure what Paul means by that. Some think that Paul is saying that everyone currently with him in Rome and everyone who he's ever served with only cares about themselves. And I could say that might be true because we're all selfish. But, but is Paul saying that there really is no one else and everybody doesn't think about the things of Christ? I think what Paul is saying, just look at verse 20. He says, I have, present tense, I currently have no one else of kindred spirit. He's talking about the circle that is currently around him. He says, look, I've got an errand to send someone on and I've got a limited supply of people to send out. I currently do not have someone who is going to be equally as interested in the things of Christ as Timothy. He's already said back in chapter 1 that there are some people with ulterior motives. Look at verse 15 of chapter 1. He says, some to be sure they're preaching Christ from what? Envy and strife. He says, but also some are doing it from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. But the former, meaning those who are preaching Christ out of envy and strife, they're proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives. So there are these people who are in Rome who are preaching Christ, but they're not preaching because they love people. They're preaching for what they can get out of it. What is it that marks them? Selfish. Selfish motives. And so just put yourself in Paul's position. If you're going to send anyone to help a church, you have to send someone who is selfless, who's not interested in their reputation, in their honor, in their glory. And Paul says, I've got that guy. It's Timothy. Paul needs a man who's going to bring unity and harmony to the church. He needs someone who's not going to be self-centered and self-focused. He needs a Philippians 2, 3 through 4 kind of a guy, one who does nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind considers, regards one another as more important than themselves. He says, I got that guy. I just preached on it. This is the one that I'm sending to you. That was Timothy. He stood out as having among everyone else, a supreme concern for others. And I just want to ask you, church, do you have that reputation? Do you? Or are you known as a very selfish person? Selfish with your time, selfish with your home, selfish with your gifts, selfish with your money. Because look, if we're going to be a light to this world, one of the things that needs to mark us is that we are so others-focused. And like Paul, we need to pour ourselves out for others. There are those in our church who have needs, marriage needs, parenting needs, need help moving, need help with babysitting, need help with counseling. And I'll tell you honestly, I mean, I was writing this and thinking to myself, our church is pretty amazing. Because we've experienced this as a family, as a couple, as parents, the way that the church has loved us and cared for us and, and met our needs. But oftentimes that happens to the pastor. Sometimes it's like, well, that's the pastor. But what about everybody else? But then I hear how well we're loving one another, and I'm greatly encouraged. And so if anything, I want to tell you, church, we need to press on still more and continue to be the kind of selfless believers that make a mark in the world. But are you that kind of believer? Opening up your home, being that sweet-smelling aroma of selflessness? John Piper says, look, selfless, or selfishness seeks its own private happiness, and it does it at the expense of others. But he contrasts that and says, love seeks its happiness in the happiness of of the beloved. And that's the key to joy. If you want to be happier in this life, if you want to experience more joy, then pour yourself out for people. Give yourself to people. Prioritize people. Pray for people. That is what will bring you 
joy here in this world and in life to come. So Timothy, he's spirit-filled, same-souled, sincere, selfless, but look, he's also steady. Verse 22, it says, but you know his proven worth. And I love this. Paul doesn't say, you've heard of his worth. He doesn't say, you've heard of Timothy's character and his reputation. Paul's not trying to personally vouch for Timothy. No, what he says is, no, you know by way of experience this brother's worth. Because this has been going on for over a decade. This man has been faithful. Now, the interesting thing is that when Paul writes to second, in 2 second Timothy, he's still talking about Timothy being youthful, which means that 10 years ago, you know how old Timothy probably is when he joins Paul? Probably like 18, 19, 20. I just want to challenge some of you young men who are waiting. You think that maybe you need to wait a while, get some... You know, get, a, get a girl first, and then maybe get married, and then maybe have some kids, and then maybe get some gray hair to be influential in the church. And I'll just tell you, that's not the case. If you want to have uh, the kind of character and reputation that is pleasing to the Lord, you start now. Start with my eight-year-old, and I ask him questions. Son, do you believe that about God the Father? Does your heart say yes when we read that? We start him young. We catechize, and there's no apology here because we want to teach our kids good, sound theology because we want them to live that good, sound theology out. Timothy, he is proven. But notice again that Paul doesn't just say, you know his worth. He adds this. He says, you know his proven worth. You see the difference there? If someone says, hey, you're a man, you're a woman of character, that's awesome. But if they come and say, you're a man of proven character, well, that's a little bit different because that means that your character has been tested. And that's what this word means. It means proof after testing. The way that you test metals and coins to make sure that they're legitimate. You know, I usually like bite a coin. I don't really do that, but I've seen people do that. You bite a coin. Okay, it looks like it's real. All right. That's what it's talking about here. Timothy has been put through the fire. He's been approved. He's been tested. And he's proved every single time, no matter what the challenge, he's consistent. He's devoted. He is faithful. One of the distinctives of an elder in a church is that they're not to be new converts. But Timothy here, he's a veteran, even at a young age. And Paul loved him so much that he considered him a troubleshooter. Hey, you just follow Timothy, the way that he's mentioned in the scriptures. Over and over again, Paul's always just, I'll send Timothy, I'll send Timothy, I'll send Timothy. In 1 Corinthians, in chapter 4, and verse 17, he says this, For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And look at what Timothy's going to do. He's going to remind you of my ways which are in Christ. He sent him to Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians 3.2, he says this, And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ. And why did you send Timothy, Paul? To strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. He sent Timothy to Ephesus. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 3, it says, I exhorted you when going to Macedonia to remain on in Ephesus so that you may command certain ones not to teach a different doctrine, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the stewardship from God, which is by faith. And he says this, but the goal of our command is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and an unhypocritical faith. And every time you send Timothy somewhere, that's what he's going to do. He's going to teach He's going to model. He's going to ensure there's sound doctrine. He's going to make sure there's unity and harmony in the church. Timothy was so instrumental in Paul's ministry that he went everywhere with Paul. And we see that in all of his letters. At the end of the letter, there's Timothy, there's Timothy, there's Timothy. Here goes Timothy. He just, you need me? I'm there. He was a proven servant. Spirit-filled, same-souled, sincere, selfless, steady, and lastly, I love this, he served as a son. He served as a son. He wasn't only ready and available to love the Philippians, but he was ready and available because he was modeling after his spiritual father. 
Look at verse 22. But you know his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. And you guys know this. In that day and age, we're so far removed, but you watched your dad. And if you wanted to be a craftsman or a carpenter or a rabbi, you just kind of hung on the coattails of your dad and you learned and observed and you picked things up and your dad would give you some responsibilities and as you proved yourself with those responsibilities, he'd give you more. So eventually you get to the point where you're independent and you either take over the family business or, or you go and do your own thing. That, that's the kind of mentality that we have here. Paul is saying, Timothy is like my son and I've passed on the baton. It's the mantle of ministry and he's taken it and he's running with it. But I want to highlight just three points of interest here because first, the verb that Paul uses here for served, it's actually that familiar word. It's from that Greek word doulos or douloi. It means slaved. And so what Paul is saying is, look, Timothy, he slaved alongside me in the gospel. Second, I want you to notice that the word that Paul uses for son Again, the ESV, the NIV, the King James, they all translate it as son, but the word is actually technon, not huios. So he's saying child. And you say, well, what's the difference? Is there a big difference between son and child? Well, son is kind of just a generic word. Child, I think, though, is getting at the intimacy and the affection of a father-son relationship. You see, normally it's the son's duty to obey. I don't know how many of you growing up, like the flashlight holder, just kind of holding the flashlight for dad, and dad's doing all the work. I'm just, I'm here, and I'm, I'm helping. And as a son, you kind of just, you, you, you do what dad says. Dad's the authority, you do what dad says. But I think the picture that Paul is painting here is, no, it goes beyond that. It's the wide-eyed child who sees dad and wants to mimic dad. So when dad's walking, and he's got a certain kind of strut or rhythm, the son's just walking along with him. And the child is trying to emulate and do the things that dad is doing. And, and that is what Paul is saying here. Timothy's just following in my footsteps. The two work together. They slave together. And thirdly, I just want you to notice this, that Paul doesn't say that Timothy served me in the work of the gospel. He adds this word with. He served with me in slaving for the advancement of the gospel. And so the picture here is both of them slaving together, both of them rowing together in pace. Paul, the mentor, Timothy, the protege, but they're on equal ground, serving one another. Paul didn't look at Timothy like a little peon to go do his errands. No, he viewed him as a valuable asset, an equal. And I just love the humility here. Because Paul, again, he's the elder statesman, he could have been bossing him around. And Timothy, he could have been striving to be of more importance, but he doesn't want to be a superstar. He just wants to serve. He's not looking for fame. He just wants to be faithful. Turn with me real quickly to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I just want you to see the beauty of this relationship. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 2. Timothy never praising himself but we always see praise coming from his proud father. He says this, my true child in the faith, 2 Timothy 1-2, my beloved son, 1 Corinthians 9-17, my beloved faithful child in the Lord. And move on over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Starting in verse 10. First, 2 Timothy 3 starting in verse 10. Paul says this, Now you followed. Literally, it says, you followed closely. What did he follow? My teaching. Everything that I said, Timothy, you hung on it. You obeyed it. You followed not just my teaching, but my conduct, how I behaved. You followed my purpose. That's why I did what I did. You also followed my faith, my patience, my love, my perseverance, even my persecution and suffering. D.A. Carson in his commentary says this, much Christian character is as much caught as it is taught. 
it's picked up by constant association with mature Christians. Look, as we come to a close, I just want to ask you, as we look at this profile of Timothy, and we observe all the ways that he's faithful, does your heart say, I want that? I was um, messaging with Pastor Scott last night. He was asking me what I was preaching on, and I told him, and I said, oh man, I'm excited to be preaching on Timothy, the self-sacrificing servant. And he just said, man, may we all be like that. Now, Pastor Scott, for me, has always been uh, the guy that I looked up to, the guy that I wanted to emulate, the guy that um, I wanted to pray like. He, he's modeled that for me. Um, it would be a great disservice if it just stopped like that. Just stop with me. The reason why we invest in other people is that we can be that, that little pebble that keeps skipping and skipping and skipping and skipping. Don't just think your son, don't just think your daughter, don't just think your grandkid, but when you're long and gone and no one remembers you, you can still have an impact for the gospel. And you can have an impact for the gospel if you're spirit-filled, if you are faithfully serving, if you are selfless, if you are same-minded, if you are sincere, if you're serving those that have led you, your spiritual mother, your spiritual father, if you're being faithful, you will have a long impact for the time to come. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are greatly encouraged um, observing the life of Timothy, this sweet relationship between he and the Apostle Paul. And Lord, we're even reminded that uh, discipleship, that's what it's about. Jesus says himself in Matthew chapter 10 that a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. And it is enough for a disciple that he becomes like his teacher and a slave like his master. Oh Lord, may we be very selective and intentional in following after those who follow you. And may we equally be intentional in grabbing another hand and saying, follow me as I follow Christ. Father, in a world where people, they don't want to be role models because they don't want the responsibility. I pray that we would desire that, not for our own sake, not for our own glory, but because we know that we're following Christ and we want others to follow Christ as well. Lord, our kids, whether we like it or not, are always observing us, always watching us, our mannerisms, our language, our priorities. May we live in such a way that what they take away is mommy and daddy love Christ. And for our single people who have no kids or who aren't married, I pray, God, that those who they come in contact with every day, whether it's in the military, whether it's at school, whether it's family members or friends, I pray, Lord, that they would see something of the beauty and majesty of Christ and their devotion and their commitment to the church. And, Lord, I pray that you would raise up more Timothys in our congregation I pray that you would raise up people who are going to be thoroughly committed to the mission and purpose, not of Grace Church Monterey Bay, but Christ's mission. Help us all, Lord, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel to which we've been called. It is beautiful. It is the most important news in all the earth, and we want to be faithful to it. We pray this in Jesus' name.